So we, um, we partner with a lot of different ministries here at South Spring, and one of them is Gideon's. Um, and so at the end of the service, when we're done, um, there will be some people at the back of the room, I think that's right, um, who will be, is that right, John? We're going to have guys at the back? Yes. Yeah. So if you would like to donate to Gideon's, one of the cool things about Gideon's is that, is that essentially everyone in the system is serving without pay in the Gideon's uh, ministry, which means that that 100% of what you give goes to um, purchasing Bibles. That's, that's how you get to 2 billion Bibles. Um, and so this is, uh, you, you know, um, I love when we get to partner with them. Obviously, we are passionate about God's word here. It is, it is why we spend all this time on Sunday morning talking about it, is because it is, it is uh, the, the truth revealed in Scripture and that's why we want us to be sophisticated, well-trained people who handle God's word well, who know how to learn from it and how to apply it. Um, that's vital for us. Um, and so we, we, especially in a world that seems more and more prone to drift moment by moment, one direction or another, to be tossed back and forth with whatever the popular feelings are of the minute, um, to have something that is always going to point north, that's always going to be I'm telling us the truth that is, that is the source for truth that we can uncover and apply to our lives is, is, uh, is so valuable. So um, I really want to encourage you that we do, as we do today, that, that you take a, a few extra minutes, take special time, and, and, uh, and give to them when we're done here. Um, all right. So speaking of which, in John chapter 12, um, does anybody remember this little section? There's kind of a, a constant theme that hits over and over again. Here in John 11 and 12, after Jesus has revealed himself um, as fully as he, as he can outside of the final act of uh, his own death and resurrection, um, he's revealed himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, we're going to see that even more played out in this chapter um, as he makes that even more clear. Um, and you got to love the fact that John is going to say, as Jesus makes it abundantly in your face, obviously, unavoidably clear who he is, John is actually going to admit, we, we didn't really get it. Um, so you got to love John's honesty about that. But it's pretty clear. Um, you gotta be, you got to be not paying great attention in order to miss some of this stuff. Weeks. Um, what is the theme? So what, is the, what have we been talking about the last few weeks? Given that, anybody remember? Good, now you'll remember. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with this Jesus who has revealed himself to you this way? What is going to be your response? And what we've been seeing over the last few weeks is different responses to this Jesus who has revealed himself as the, as the authority even over death. As he's raised Lazarus from the grave, and then we're going to see all these different responses to now that he's revealed himself fully who he is, these different responses. We've seen Mary, Martha, Judas, the Jews, the Pharisees, and now the day after the banquet, in other words, the Passover feast is at hand, even though it's a few days away, a couple of days left, or maybe five days, four days from the crucifixion and Passover. Jesus came from Bethany to Jerusalem, had recently come from Jericho. Um, we get the, the timelines are a little bit different in each of the Gospels, which is how stories, how, how these accounts were told then very often um, to draw emphasis to different things. And so Probably you have Jesus coming from Jericho, staying a night or maybe two in Bethany, and then moving on to Jerusalem with these crowds are with him this whole time. Um, if you're a fan of the events that we're getting into today, if Palm Sunday is one of those awesome 
um, things that just, just get you all excited, well then prepare to be a little disappointed by John's version of it. Because John does not make a huge deal of it. He does not make anything like as big an effect. We're going to be looking at the other versions that some of the things they mention because um, they give a little more detail than John does. Now, part of that is because John knows you have a copy of Mark and Matthew and Luke available to you probably. And so he doesn't need to go into all the same exact detail. And he wants to bring attention to certain things. But it is wild to me that as, as significant as all of this in John has been, but John is... John is not satisfied to just reveal to you that Jesus is, for example, Messiah. He's not, he's not satisfied to reveal to you just that he's king or just that he's priest, even though he does all of that. Um, John's emphasis is to move past all of those and to make sure that you understand that Jesus Christ is God. And so he's, he's th this passage, which is really about emphasizing Christ as Messiah, as king, and even priest, John is going to, to lump all those together because he wants to get as quickly as possible, I think, to Jesus' teaching in the upper room, and, uh, which is something he emphasizes way more than the others because that's going to reveal new things about us. But here's where we are. Um, it is spring in Israel, and this is, it's hard for us to remember. So if you get uh, Paul's mic on real quick. So Paul just got back from Israel in spring. Paul, share with us, what's, what's it like? Yeah, I was talking to Chris right before the service because the last time we were in Israel, we went in the summertime. And so I was in some of these same places considering this same passage, looking out at a land that was dry and arid and grass was, it was rocks and grass and dirt uh, and it was hot. And, and, and that's the picture I had saved in my mind. But now being back in the springtime, it was like I saw a different Israel. It was lush and it was green. Uh, the, we, we had several days of actually rain on us. And so uh, in, the, in the rain, the land turns in response to it. And there's flowers and there's growth. They always look at how much they've had in the rain of the season by measuring how tall the wheat were, was. And we were seeing places with huge stalks of wheat. Um, we were at the source of where one of the sources of, that feeds down to the Jordan River. And our guide, who's been doing this for over 10 years, he was taking pictures of how high the water was because he had never seen it that high. Uh, and so it was an amazing experience to get to see it in this lush, vibrant, green, and beautiful, beautiful place. And while we were there, you Texans can, can relate to this because we would, we would wake up and we would experience three of the four seasons all within one day. Uh, it would always change and it would always kind of move over. And so it was something that was a, a very cool experience to kind of relate to it in a whole different way. Very cool. Thank you, Paul. That's, I want to make sure we have that so that you're picturing as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, there are vines growing on the walls that are producing flowers of all different types. And as you walk through the fields, it would look like this, this time of the year. And so it's, it's a beautiful time of the year to be in Israel. And as Paul said, it, the, the temperatures are all over the place. The, the precipitation is all over the place. When I was there this time of the year in 08, we had a day that started at about 70 degrees and had sleet. Remember that? And we had sleet in the city of Jerusalem. Well, you were there with me at the same time, right? And we're all huddled around each other on the Mount of Olives as literally it's dropped down to about 28 degrees and there's sleet falling from the sky and we had nothing. I mean, we're all like, you know, shorts and shorts and hats. Like, and so, um, and then later that afternoon, it warmed back up. So um, it, it's an um, incredible place. And to keep in mind, um, for them, as Paul was pointing out, for them, which I would, when I grew up as a kid and you read a passage like it rains on the just and the unjust, we're like, yeah, bad things happen to everybody. Because when you're a kid, rain equals bad, right? But for them, it rains on the just and the unjust. Rain is blessing. Every time I've been, our guides have said, please, please, please pray for rain in Israel. 
Um, they, they are in a hundred-year drought. And so they are, that's why you've got guides distracted by the size of the wheat and the, and the amount of rain, because it's, it's life and death for them, um, whether they get enough rain. So um, as, we're, as we're looking, so I want you to have that correct picture. Here's where we are in chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, if, this, if, the, if the story of Palm Sunday, if the account of Palm Sunday is one of your favorites, then you're going to be disappointed by John's version. Because John is not going to camp here. He spends less time than any of the other gospels on this passage. It's just two or three verses. That's because John's emphasis is Christ as God. This, this passage portrays maybe better than anything else, Christ as King, Christ as Messiah, maybe even Christ as priest. And we're going to look at that. I'm actually going to pull from Matthew and Luke to get some more detail because John gives us so little detail about this um, because he's... I, my personal opinion is John's in a hurry get to, to get to Jesus' upper room discourse. John can't wait to tell us what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, which is almost ignored by the other three gospel writers. Because I think John is, this is, this is where John, this is, this is his meat and potatoes, is the theology that Jesus teaches up there. So we'll get there and we will spend months um, in those passages because they are, I mean, chapter, verse by verse is, is just shocking. Um, so Hosanna, Hosanna, when we sing that, now you can know what you were singing a few seconds ago, which is always nice. Um, Hosanna literally comes from the concept, comes from the Hebrew words um, that just mean to save. Save us. Um, save us. Over time, it began to be save us. Praise you who saves us. Praise to you who has come to save us. That's what they're singing. The palm branches, uh, the palm leaf is a symbol of victory in the Middle East. Palm leaves were given to victorious athletes, um, royal and military victory, which is only good news for half of the people. Um, you may recall um, that they also use it as a symbol during Sukkot, um, the Feast of, ta of Tabernacles, um, that they, they bring them out and they wave them. They have the, the three or four, the three different um, uh, plants that they use to celebrate Sukkot. And one of them is the palm leaf, and they wave it, kind of in the idea that as God looks down, it looks like his garden. It looks like Eden again. Um, and anything that's put underfoot, notice John doesn't reference the fact that they put their cloaks down. Um, again, he's moving through this quickly. Um, that is a very much so a king thing. The idea that they put their cloaks down. The other gospel writers focus on the fact they put cloaks and, and, and shirts and whatever clothing down under him. That's a sign of submission we know from other accounts um, of this kind of thing. So let me read um, from 2 Kings, for example, um, chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to actually start in verse uh, 12. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I appoint you king over Israel. This is Jehu speaking. Then in haste. Every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So here you have, when Jehu is declared king of Israel, the people stripped off garments and put it under him as a sign of submission and honor. Jehu, by the way, this is a powerful symbol. Jehu is the one who defeated Jezebel, who defeated the wicked house of, of uh, Ahab in Israel at God's instruction, who utterly defeated the religion of Baal worship in his time. 
In fact, the, one of the great Baal temples, he tore it down and turned it into a bathroom um, just to show his contempt for Baal. Um, now, unlike Jesus, Jehu was just a man, and so he did not finish strong, sadly. But, but that's this picture, this picture of Jesus. They're realizing, oh, Jesus is coming. We don't have a red carpet to roll out for our king who is showing up. So they start taking off garments and waving palm leaves when they hand him. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So you can start playing that video. The, the Mormon church has put out videos of different things uh, during Jesus' life, and sometimes they, they do a good job. Um, this one, this is pretty good for a couple of things that I want you to see and I want you to understand. As Texans and Americans, we want to picture a stadium full of people, right? Um, we want to picture 50,000, 150,000 people all screaming and waving and doing banners and pom-poms and doing the wave and that kind of stuff. That's, that's, this is a more accurate picture. Now, there's a couple of things weird about this. One is, no one's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you, comes. I don't, I don't know why that's not in here. Uh, that seems odd. Um, and all their teeth is perfect. That probably is not historically accurate either. They all have perfect teeth. But the, um, other than that, the, a correct picture of multi-ethnic group, a population at Passover um, in Jerusalem. There might have been a million and a half people in the region at this time. And it was, it was a massive population but Jesus riding in on this donkey would have represented maybe a few thousand people crowding narrow streets because the streets were and are narrow, crowding narrow streets and, and waving palm leaves and laying down their cloaks. And while they would have been chanting, the noise might have been drowned out even just by the crowd noises everywhere. Um, I also think my personal opinion is that Jesus would have come in through the Eastern Gate and that was the, Eastern, the first century Eastern Gate is buried. Um, but the one that goes straight up into the temple, that's my, my opinion. I, I, amazingly, the Bible doesn't tell us which gate he entered, which is why I think it was the eastern gate. But this, this is Jesus coming in with these crowds, again, picturing accurately maybe thousands of people, but not, not an overwhelming, shocking number. This wouldn't have looked like an invading army. If it had looked like an invading army, the Romans would have stamped it out in an instant. What it looked like was a group of people celebrating in a way that they understood the one who they were calling their king. It probably wouldn't have taken very long. If they caught him at the Valley of Kidron, it's only it's less than a mile up to the temple, riding on the back of the donkey. So here we have this image. Let's talk about the donkey just for a second as well. Matthew gives us much more detail about the donkey. John just says he found one. Matthew says... Now when he drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Luke gives even another tiny detail um, in Luke 19, saying, Go into the village in front of you, one where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing it, you will say this, the Lord has need of it. One of the common things in the uh, Hebrew scripture is that there are certain roles for certain things. This is actually one of the major themes of the, of the legal system of Israel. If, when we as Westerners look at the legal system that God set up for Israel, we get easily confused by it. But understand a big portion of it was meant to teach this lesson. This is this. And this is this. This is for this. And this is for this. 
and they don't interchange. This is special for this purpose. It is sacred for this purpose. This is special or sacred for this purpose. You don't interchange them. This is a huge, when you go through and read the Hebrew scriptures, you will see this is one of the most common messages of the law that every single day they were doing dozens of things that was meant to communicate. No, no, this is for this and this is for this. Don't, don't mix them. And so in the same way, for example, there would be cattle who were saved and that never had a yoke on its shoulders that were saved for certain sacrifices. It's set apart. It's sanctified. It's special for this purpose. This seems to be the case with this donkey. In fact, one of my guides in Israel, although I've not found a lot of uh, other evidence for this, but one of my guides in Israel said that he believed that this donkey, that was its job, that from the time of Zechariah, that a family had decided, or families had decided, one of the gospels says owners, plural, that, that families had gotten together and they always had a donkey waiting. They had a donkey's colt waiting in Bethany. He would... Because everyone knew Jesus, or Jesus, the Messiah, was coming from the east. And so it would be natural he would come through Bethany. So in Bethany, they had a donkey tied up, ready to go with its mother, that all that had to happen was at some point, somebody was going to come along, and it was going to be the Messiah, and he was going to need a donkey. Because that's what the prophecy said. And this idea that some family had set aside a certain amount of their fortune to host a colt, a donkey's colt, until it grew up old enough to where it was no longer a colt, and then they could put it to work, and they would need a new one. For 500 years, probably, a family or families had been doing this. Now, it's amazing that they had not lost sight of the tradition. You would think it would be one of those after 500 years, they would have this donkey, and somebody would have shown up and said, hey, we need to get this donkey, and they'd have been like, no, no, no one touches the donkey. Why not? We don't know. We just, the donkey stays there, and no one ever touches it. And what, but apparently they had passed this down well from generation to generation. Jesus sends two disciples. The two disciples come in the city. They say, hey, we're, Jesus says, there's going to be a donkey tied up there. They go, okay, and sure enough, there is. They start to untie it. The owners come out. Hey, 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 hey. You can't just take that donkey. Oh, but the Lord needs it. Important word there, the Lord. Not not a Lord, the, the Lord, the Lord needs it. For 500 years, you've had a donkey waiting here that has gone unridden, and he's shown up. That's, that's a crazy thought. By the way, the reason this donkey exists was for today. No other purpose. Jesus is going to ride him a few hundred yards into the city, and story done. Um, it's one of my four symbols of my ministry is the donkey, because of the King James Version, um, which I'll just, those of you who don't, you, you know what's, what, what the donkey is called in the King James Version. And I heard a pastor say, if you think, if, if you think that this story is about you in any way, then you're making a donkey out of yourself. And so to be reminded, the job of the donkey was to transport Jesus as it was called to do, and if it along the way thought, hey, these people really like me. Look, they're, they're waving leaves at me. They're putting stuff under my feet. They're praising me. Like, nope, wrong, sorry. You're just the donkey. So that's, you'll see over in my office, I have four symbols, and one of them is that. So the, that's a reminder, constant. So here, that's this, this donkey has an incredible story. Listen to this. 500 years before, 
Zechariah had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Hosanna, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fool of a donkey. For maybe 25 generations, this family, maybe if this is accurate, this family had been doing the, having this role in this story. It's, a, it's pretty cool to consider. By the way, it reminds me once again of the mistake that our culture makes in saying that authenticity or sincerity is about emotion. You don't maintain a biblical prophecy for 500 years because you feel like it. Authenticity is the same, is when things are the same across time. Sincerity is when the things are the same under pressure. Emotions are neither. By definition, they are neither the same across time nor the same under pressure. Let's get away from as the church, let's come back to the truth that sincerity and authenticity is about faithfulness. It's about steadfastness. It's about integrity. It's about character and submission to God, not about how we feel. Feelings are awesome as reactions. They're terrible leaders. This idea just struck me. And by the way, it isn't a horse. Obviously, this is a big part of this. It isn't a horse. It isn't an elephant. It isn't a chariot. It's not even a mule that sometimes Jewish kings rode on. It's, it's, Jesus did not come into town flying on the wings of a bunch of angels. He didn't just fly himself. He could have. That would have been cool, Right? Just a superman himself right into the city would have been amazing. Instead, because though Lord and King, he is humble. It's an amazing picture. It's like he doesn't know what he's doing. Here's a, let's, let's learn. About, so, so from this era and before, triumphal entries are not a new thing. We have Alexander the Great triumphal entry. I see. That's how you do it. A giant golden chariot followed by huge animals and elephants and, and horses with treasure all around you. See, that's, that's how you do it. Or Vespasian, have a huge parade. Marcus Aurelius, on the back of a chariot. One of my favorites is the Titus Arch in Rome. That you can go, they, the Romans would then build an arch to signify the fact that they marched in successfully with their giant parade to declare themselves, and then they build an arch to commemorate it. This one is especially special for Bible scholars um, because you can, if you look at it, there's a, it's hard to see that kind of pixelated, but there's a crowd of people, and they're carrying stuff. And in fact, up close, you can see that what they're carrying is the menorah from the temple in Jerusalem um, and other things from the temple. When Jesus said it was going to be destroyed, he meant it. This is who did it. So his entry is instead humble. He is Lord and King. Now I will comment because I know we have horse people here. Okay, so some of you, some of you horse people, the big deal to you. This is an addition to me in the in the that there were commentaries that, that made a big deal out of this, and so I must not be understanding this correctly. But all the horse people were most impressed by the fact that Jesus rode a donkey that had never been ridden before. That's that's what they were impressed by. Like that this is somehow him showing dominance over the animals and the created like, no one rides a donkey that's never been ridden before. You don't do that. Like that's, we used to have a, a joke when I was out at Pine Cove every week at family camp, the, the wrangler would get up and say, you know, we got horses and you can ride the horses and hey, if you're nervous, all the Pine Cove people in the room are like, I know where this is going. If you're nervous because you've never ridden a horse before, that's okay because we have horses that have never been ridden before. And so it'll be a perfect matching of, of the two of you guys getting like, 
You don't, you don't ride an animal that's not been broken or trained or ridden. And so, again, I mean, I, I'm sharing this with you because I know for some of you this will be a big deal. I mean, awesome. I don't, I don't it, it uh, okay, good. All right, so, um, he was not coming forcefully with a big shield wall and catapults. He wasn't coming to conquer them. Um, he was defeating the spiritual powers of sin and death, not with armed might, but peace and sacrifice. How fascinating is it that here this man, Jesus Christ, essentially began to sneak into Jerusalem. He grabs a donkey, he rides the donkey in, and still he is glorified. Still the people show up and they glorify him as their king. But they didn't get it. The disciples didn't understand all that was going on. We know that because John tells us. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. They put the pieces together later. This, again, this is so real. I mean, these, I think it's natural, especially if you're raised in church, to accidentally kind of go, you know, you've got, you've got the apostle Peter, and you've got the old woman who lived in a shoe, and you've got James and John, and you've got Jack B. Nimble and Paul Bunyan, and like, and like we, we, kind of auto, we kind of put all these fairy tale characters together these aren't fairy tale characters. They're just real humans. They're drinking out of a fire hose here. The nature of reality is changing right in front of them. Of course they're not getting all of it. They're going like, hey, he's, he's riding a donkey. That seems really cool. And then, and then months later, one of them is reading a Hebrew scripture. And he reads a passage where Zechariah prophesies this is going to happen. And he calls all the guys together. He's like, guys, 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 look. Have, did y'all remember this Zechariah prophecy? Jesus fulfilled this. That's amazing. When they, when they go to, when the, somebody's reading about the crowning of Jehu and they go, oh, look, the crowning of Jehu. Wait, they put garments down? It's just like we do it today, that we uncover these things. What, what a powerful image this creates of disciples for the next years of their life. Sitting around Passover dinner a year after this one, discussing this one and the theological implications of it. Of course that's what happened. They didn't get it. By the way, a criticism in the secular atheist world, the anti-Christian kind of world about some of this stuff, is that this is all manufactured, like that, that John created a picture, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote and invented a picture that created an image of Jesus like a Greek or Roman king coming in triumphal entry, even though with this strange kind of humble aspect to it. To me, that seems so odd that to say, oh, gee, they must have created it, Versus saying they didn't create it, they, ex they experienced it. In fact, John's admitting when we experienced it, we didn't get it. This, is, this isn't the, the glorified John show. John never allows us to do that. John never seems to know what's going on. And it's worse than, worse than Mark. If you read the book of Mark, the disciples come across as a comedy routine. They never understand Jesus, what's going on. If this is an invented religion, they sure wrote themselves to look like the morons of the story. And so I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me at all. But look at the advantage we have. All these years later, we actually get to understand the event in ways they didn't at the time. Because we have their writings about it. We have thousands now of years of godly men and women, serious students, understanding this, digging into this, making connections for us. Isn't it wild that probably in many ways, us studying it right now, we get it better than they did while they were going through it. That's a huge advantage. The power of the Holy Spirit in us 
in addition to the power of the Holy Spirit revealing to Christians for thousands of years who've written about this stuff. They didn't get it. Before this, before they were martyred, and all of, almost all of them were, they realized that Jesus had been anointed as king and priest and for his burial by Mary the day before, or in the days before. They got later, they began to understand that he's coming to the city as the people welcome him as their king and then put together, wait a minute, you remember what Jesus' first teachings were? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like, oh, he's king. He's our king. Now I will tell you, as as an American, of course, we have an interesting response to the idea of king. I assume this is still the case. I mean, it was a big deal in school that we didn't have a king. That's what sets us apart in some ways, is that America never went through a royal phase. We've never had a king. We've never had a queen. The kind of, the minute man in me kind of gets revved up at the thought, right? We've never had a king. That's right. You can't, you can't king us, especially as a Texan, right? And you bring your king. Anyway, so we're like, like, like we're not scared of your king. We, this, is a, this has kind of been part of our heritage, and, and I think that's cool. But as a Christian prince, as, as royalty in God's family, as, as a member of the Knights of Christ, the Militus Christi, I get revved up by the thought that as Christians, we do have a king. And, and what a king we have. We have the ultimate king, the king who is powerful enough to raise someone from the dead and humble enough to enter his own holy city on a donkey. This is a crazy picture of a king, this image of a king who we can follow and serve. In between the services, Doug Foreman came up and he was like, he's like, I know that you're not, you didn't go, this, go there with this, but he goes, here's another thing that struck me was, this is, this is also a groom entering the city of his bride. What a groom. Strong, powerful, in control, and humble, serving. Wow. It's like, this is, this is an amazing groom. 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead can declare bear witness. They kept talking about this thing. So here we have this king and they're all declaring him king. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. He was a priest who had the power over death itself. Not only king, but priest. And what a priest over the power of death. They continued to bear witness to that. These crowds were not um, the crowds, the people, the cheering. It was an amazing thing, but it wasn't good news to everybody. The coming Messiah, the king of the Jews, the priest with the power over death, was not a good thing in the view of a few people. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So the Pharisees looking out their windows, the Pharisees from the high places in the city, the rooftops, looking down on these crowds of people, and of course, they turn on each other. Look at that. Do you have followers like that? You don't have followers like that. Everyone's going, look, there's one of your followers, and he's following this Jesus character now. He's not listening, to, and the guy's like, me? Your followers are all down there too. You're gaining nothing out of this. None of us are. They're all going over to him. This is another showing us yet again the pharisaical response to him. Their desperation makes them dangerous. Think about all the different ways these Pharisees could 
be responding to this moment. This is actually kind of heartbreaking to me when I think about it. Why was the donkey there for 500 years? It was for this moment. Why were the Pharisees here? It was for this moment. Their job was to lead the Jewish people to worship God and to funnel them to the moment of their coming Messiah. And unlike the donkey, they don't get it. Once again, that imagery in the, in the book of John when only blind people seem to see, only the donkey seems to fully understand what he's supposed to be doing right now. Everybody else seems a little bit confused, and the Pharisees most confused of all. Are they thinking? Not very much. Are they praying? It doesn't seem like at all. Are they studying scripture to figure out how they're supposed to respond to this moment? Apparently not even a little bit. This is their job. This is their one thing they're supposed to do. They don't want to learn something they don't already know and believe. God protect us from that. God save us as individuals and as a church from that mindset ever, ever, ever. So now we get not only the Pharisees don't get it, but then you get in verse 20, and we'll wrap up with some of these thoughts here, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So now we've got foreigners who, by the way, at least know to look for Jesus. Verse 21, so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. By the way, doesn't that sound... John remembers this is how it happened. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, by the way. Maybe means he knew them, or they were from the same region as him. Who knows? And here's what I remember. Andrew, I mean, Philip decided to go find Andrew... Because he couldn't find him. So the, the thing was, the Greeks apparently couldn't enter the part of the temple where Jesus was at this point. Where Jesus was, the, the Greeks couldn't follow him into this place because they're foreigners. They were worshipers of Yahweh, but they weren't followers of the law. They had not converted to Judaism completely. They just worshipped the right God, which is, which is in and of itself pretty cool, but they couldn't enter into that area. So Jesus, they, they send, okay, could you go find him? Philip goes to find Andrew. Andrew goes and find Jesus. They come to Jesus and say, there's some Greeks out there. Now, we don't exactly know what happens right here. We don't know if Jesus turns to Philip and Andrew and gives this answer. Or if Jesus followed Philip and Andrew to the Greeks and then gives them all this answer. Regardless, it's clear what happens here. What happens is Jesus is caught in mid-thought. Jesus is sitting and thinking about things. He's praying about things. He's got the, that, that, those thoughts revving around in his mind about what's coming. He knows what's coming. We know he knows what's coming. He's told them already in great detail. I'm going to be arrested by the Jews. The Jews are going to turn me over turn me to the Romans, and the Romans are going to kill me, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. That's what's going to happen next. He's already told them this. So Jesus, you can imagine Jesus sitting in the temple. The temple, by the way, which exists for worship of him, of God. And he's in there, I assume, communing with the triune God. And in this internal conversation that's going on, and they stop him, and you can imagine, this would be crazy. If this is the Greeks, they're the disciples of the Greeks, but this is the Greeks, the Greeks are like, hey, we want to see the celebrity. We want to see what everybody's talking about. We want to see everybody's. So Jesus, tell us something, right? You can see this eager, Jesus, tell us something. So here's what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I truly say to you, listen, listen, that's what truly, truly, remember? 
Listen, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has death and fruit bearing on his mind. Jesus is talking his way through the fact that he's about to die. Do I have to die? Is that how this has to play out? And he's thinking through. It's like this. So I'm going to brag on myself for a second. Um, yeah, we, have a gar- we do a garden thing. And every year we've, we've had people come out and help us with this garden. And last year, I took it on my own. So I took the plants, took some of the plants, and I actually cut them up. And I took the seeds, and I dried the seeds, and I sealed the seeds up in something. And then a few weeks ago, I planted them with absolutely no hope of them growing. <laughs> Zero. I, I mean, I, I was 100% sure this wouldn't work. I, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. It's got to be harder than this. There's no way this works out this way. So I took these little tomato seeds and other plants, and, and I put them in little pots. And I'm like, and, and we'll wait a few months and then I'll go buy tomatoes at Lowe's and plant them, okay? So that was, that was the plan. That's exactly what I had in mind. And a few days ago, I came outside, and those of you who are up close can see something's growing in there. I don't know, I don't know if it's the right thing, but <laughs> I planted like nine seeds, and there's three sprouts coming up there. That's, that's not bad odds either. I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped. I've got a whole bunch of them, and they're all doing that, and I'm And here's the plan. The plan is that that one tiny little seed that got dead and buried and then was resurrected to new life and began to grow, that what will happen is eventually in a few weeks or months, here's the plan now, is that it will climb up through the trestles of the garden and it will begin to produce dozens if not hundreds of tomatoes and each of them will have dozens if not hundreds of seeds inside of them. That's what Jesus is talking about here. One seed, him, The first seed. Do we get that we are 2,000 years later, the new tomatoes? That's us. The question is, what's being done with our seeds? What are we doing with this that's been passed down? Jesus' disciples, the first generation to grow from his death and his resurrection. And now that's us all these years later. This is the image Jesus is creating. We're going to pick this up because Jesus is in the middle of a thought. But this to me seemed like a great place to say, you know what? This is a consideration. What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with the king of kings and the priest of priests with the power over death? What are we going to do with the Messiah? And what are we going to do with the man who's gonna, who has revealed himself to be almighty God? What are we going to do with that message, with that seed? I suspect... Most Christians, even in modern times, invest very little in the next generation. God forbid, that's us, that we go, no, no, I don't want to learn anything new. No, 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 I want to protect what I've got. I'm not willing to die to this stuff. That's the Pharisees. Or are we like Mary going, no, no, I'll give it all. My dignity, my respect, my money, my, tre- my treasure, my time, my worship, all of it. We're still talking about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word, for the power of your gospel in us to be clear to us the good news 
God, as the leadership board, we told our stories yesterday in hearing of how many people went to church for years and never heard the gospel. Or today we have experienced the gospel, the good news that your son lived as dying, will be raised again to carry our sins from us so that we can walk in the newness of life and following his example, die to ourselves and live instead for him. God, we want to live for you. We want to live for you. And that ever, all the gifts that we have, everything we have will be poured out in sacrificial worship to you because you're a good God who loves us. God, I thank you for the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that even just your Bible going out into the world transforms people's lives. I pray we will, in our hearts, engage with this in new ways because of your word. Thank you for the example. Some different ways to respond to your son. Help us to be like the most humble um, who can accept and see and worship and praise. Thank you, Father. We're so grateful that you let us be involved in what you're doing. We pray all this in, in his name. Everything, word or deed, in his name. Giving thanks to you through him. Amen.